Like a crisscrossing underground root system, unusual intersections abound when you look a little deeper beneath the foundations of our ecological knowledge. My podcast explores the inextricable yet not often perceived links between climate change and social justice. These overlooked intersections are just beginning to sprout at the surface of our understanding of climate change's impacts. Take, for example, a concept that is just beginning to come to the forefront of the climate justice consciousness, green gentrification. If you dig into the history of some of our most beloved parks, you'll exhume the residual effects of decades-old racism, housing policies that cloistered marginalized communities away from green spaces, and ushering in wealthier landowners, hence the name green gentrification. The impacts of these discrimination-soiled decisions are sprouting up today, fertilized by never-before-seen extreme temperatures and skyrocketing pollution levels, an overgrown labyrinth of social and ecological consequences entwined with climate change. However, the Earth Sangha organization is seeding another type of interlocking system, one that seeks to weed out climate change and inequities like green gentrification in the D.C. region and beyond. Earth Sangha takes root in the intersections between ecological restoration, social engagement, and Buddhist mindfulness practices in order to combat climate change and restore social equality. My name is Matt Bright. I'm the conservation manager at Earth Sangha. Uh, where I oversee pretty much all of our local conservation uh, work, including our wild plant nursery, where we grow about 300 species of local ecotype native plant right here in the Washington, D.C. area. Earth Sangha is a more than two-decade-old nonprofit organization based in the D.C. region, as you said, and the core values that guide its efforts in ecological restoration and social justice are rooted in the Buddhist philosophy, Um, And I know your organization is secular and science-based, but can you just tell me a little bit about how Buddhism informs its mission? Sure. Uh, I I might back up and talk a little bit about the the founding of the the group there. It was actually started uh, by by my parents. Um, My father um, had been working in invasive species uh, research for for a long time. Uh, My mother had been working at a social services nonprofit, and um, they began having kind of regular... uh, meditation uh, sessions with with folks from the community around here Um, and people increasingly wanted to to become more kind of socially engaged as as part of their practice you know one of the things that uh, we talk about with uh, Buddhist values at large but particularly uh, sort of socially engaged uh, Buddhism is a, a real sort of sense of empathy and compassion. So we all have that inherent within us, but it's also um, something that that requires sort of practice. It's almost like a muscle, right? So uh, the more you you practice that sort of active kind of compassion and empathy for, for people and the world around you, uh, the more skilled you are at it. And so uh, a natural outgrowth of that became getting involved in environmental issues and um our our then sort of our nursery which is our sort of keystone project grew out of uh an effort to um begin to grow just canopy trees and really species that could be planted back out into uh riparian buffer areas uh since that was a, a big push for fairfax county um in the the late 90s and into the early 2000s there that, that's that's really kind of where uh our mission kind of uh grew from how do you incorporate um, you know, the meditation and Buddhist values uh, when you are planting and 
weeding and you know introducing local native species how does buddhism tie into the way that you do that we think a lot about a sense of kind of interconnectedness buddhist values if you will and i think that lends itself very well to thinking about ecology of, of things around us right because it is the study in a lot of ways about how organisms in, in a natural or sort of semi-natural sort of setting are interconnected with each other in the world and i i think that that sort of um ability to reflect on our relationship to the natural world, um, especially in a sort of age of accelerating climate change, you know, being in uh, right here in one of the largest urban centers uh, in, in the country in an area that's experienced huge amounts of, of deforestation and environmental change uh, over the years is, is critical. Um, because if we don't understand and begin to, to quite frankly, reevaluate um, our own approach with the natural world and, and the built world and really start to think about that, that tension, um, I don't think that, that we really stand much of a chance for kind of getting the big uh, environmental questions that, that confront us either on a local scale or on a global scale. Being in, in an urban hub, as you said, and with the issue of climate change, which we know disproportionately affects certain underrepresented communities, especially in the D.C. area, what kinds of overlap do you see through your work between climate change and social justice? So I, I think there, there are a few kind of ways that uh, big ways of, of overlap. So um, one, I, I think, is, is this idea um, of what they call urban heat island effect. So it's this this sort of concept, or I shouldn't even say it's a concept, it's it's a fact. It's, it's a measurable uh, f- phenomenon where areas that are more built up, areas that have more concrete, that have more asphalt, that have more asphalt shingles, um, that have more stonework, um, and less green space, so you know fewer trees, less grass, um, things like that, fewer native meadows and forests and, um, you know, uh, effective stream buffers. Those areas tend to heat up a lot more during the day. They absorb a lot of heat. And at night, they tend to radiate a lot of that heat back out. And so where we, we tend to see dramatic changes to urban heat island effect when, when you measure that are our nighttime temperatures. And that tends to be uh, exacerbated in areas that have the highest degree of ur- urbanization and are often clustered in areas where incomes are the lowest. Uh, so if you look at a map around here, it's no surprise that some of the areas with the highest degree of urban heat island effect, like so where we are in Fairfax County, um, are in Annandale and the Route 1 corridor, which also correlates with where household incomes are the lowest. Um, this is not just a symptom of environmental uh, degradation, but it then becomes also a driver of environmental degradation. Another big pressure is that you know our, our trees in, in urban areas don't have enough room uh, to, to set their roots out. So in a forest, uh, a large proportion, perhaps a, an outright majority of the feeder roots of a tree are actually outside of its strip line. That is, its root system extends much wider uh, than its branches do. And that's part of the way it collects water and nutrients and uh, you know does gas exchange and things like that. Um, most of our urban street trees don't have that luxury to do that. Um, so a lot of these trees, their life expectancy is a lot lower. And it's an expense to replace these trees when, when they do die. Um, and so all of those things add um, not just to the expense of maintaining uh, an urban forest and a degradation of the health of that urban forest. And that's to say nothing of the elevated temperatures on the effect of wildlife, which may be tremendous as well. 
Um, but they're also drivers of social inequality. So as I said, those areas that are hotter are areas um, where people can probably ill afford extra air conditioning costs, uh, but they're saddled with it regardless. Um, there's a lot of research that shows that just direct exposure to the outdoors, to be able to, to be in a natural or semi-natural area, to you know experience just being outside, being somewhere that's a little bit peaceful, has direct uh, positive human health impacts. And there again, we have a whole subset of people that really need to go out of their way to experience. These are problems that are deeply entrenched in the American landscape that have been uh, a function of the American landscape for decades, uh, sometimes in intentionally. And uh, um, it will probably be a while before we're able to begin to remake um, our urban suburban landscape in a way uh, that's both more equitable, uh, but also more environmentally sustainable. Right. And it's all like a vicious cycle because we see these issues of, you know, green gentrification and certain green spaces are maintained more carefully than green spaces in lower income areas. And it builds on itself, perpetuate these social inequities that you're talking about. I'm just curious, what are the biggest steps that Fairfax County specifically can take to kind of combat the most of these prevalent issues that you mentioned? There, there are a few things um, that, that can happen on a kind of variety of scales, uh, I think, w- within the county, at least if, uh, uh, from, from my perspective. Uh, so w- one of those is I, I think the, the Park Authority, Fairfax County Park Authority, um, doesn't have the adequate funding. For every dollar of tax that the county collects, half a penny goes to Fairfax County Park. There, even if all of the park land that Fairfax County Park Authority owned, if it were suddenly magically were to become ecologically pristine overnight, um, we would still be in a very, very bad position uh, vis-a-vis urban heat island effect, um, local extinctions and extirpations, um, and things like that, fragmentation. So to put that in perspective, uh, if you look at studies by ecologists like Doug Tallamy or things that the late great E.O. Wilson had to say, um, they're arguing that we really need to see native plant cover of somewhere between 50 and 70% to begin to see um, wildlife and fauna and flora and things begin to bounce back from their current declines to hit a plateau and maybe begin to tick upwards again. If we really want to stave off uh, the current extinction crisis that we're in right now, if we want to address urban heat island effect and then broadly speaking, um, begin to insulate ourselves from some of the worst impacts of climate change, we're going to need to do a lot of that on private land. And given the way that our laws are set up and the tools that are available to us, that's going to have to be a lot of carrot and not a whole lot of stick to convince people uh, to do that. I had no idea how little of our taxpayer money here in Fairfax goes towards maintaining and preserving our um, local parks. That's just fascinating. This was an awesome interview. You're clearly so knowledgeable about the intersections of climate change and social justice, which is really the theme of my whole podcast. So thank you so much for doing this. Oh, yeah. No, it's my pleasure. Uh, I really enjoyed listening to, to the other podcasts. Um, I, I thought those, those were really uh, phenomenal stuff.